I think that if my mother had been in parenting class with Jacob and Moses, they might have scrapped. Because for my mother, everything had to be completely equal. And I can still picture the counter in our kitchen where before every meal, my mother lined up three glasses and three sets of gimlet eyes, watched every move that my mother made because we wanted to make sure that every glass contained an equal amount of milk or juice or pop. And yes, I called it pop because that's what it is. And Sprite is not Coke, okay? Pop. So there they, they, they lined up, ready for a voice to, to pierce the, the silence that always accompanies this moment when, when absolute equality is about to be achieved. And if one glass had more than the other, we said, Mom, you gave him more milk than you gave me. And my mother would completely and immediately correct her mistake. Now, it worked in opposite if we're talking about those nasty green peas. Mom, you gave me more peas than you gave him. And my mother would correct it. All right, Mike, take a spoon of peas off of your plate and put them on Craig's plate. Thanks, Mom. For my mother, there was great value in making sure that everything was exactly the same for her three boys so that one did not feel slighted or less in any way. Now, Jacob and Moses had no compulsion toward this kind of parenting. Jacob, the the physical father of the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and Moses as their spiritual father, had no problem whatsoever in, in conferring a much longer and a much richer blessing on one son than they had on any of the others. Now, that would have bothered my mother. And the truth of the matter is that it probably bothers us a little bit too to see what we perceive as such favoritism. So here's what we need to do in this moment, all right? We're going to pause We're going to pause right now and all of us, I hope, are going to acknowledge that sin, not only in our lives, but as it has been operating in this world for thousands and thousands of years, it has had an impact on us. And it has distorted not only our view and our understanding of love, but it's distorted our view and our understanding of justice as well. And if you and I don't acknowledge the impact that sin has had on us, then you and I are tempted to stand in in judgment of God and say, I know that I know that I know what love is. I know that I know that I know what justice is. And if God's actions don't match our actions, then we suggest that God is the one who doesn't know and understand about love. That God is the one that doesn't know and understand what justice is. And so we judge God for what we perceive to be his deficit in knowledge and understanding about love and justice. And I'll tell you this, that will lead us to a dark place every single time. When we stand in judgment of God, we're going to be unhappy people. Angry people and bitter people. So here's what we're going to do this morning, if you will agree. 
We're all going to get off the judge's bench, okay? And what we are going to do is focus on what is absolutely explicit and unquestionably beautiful about this passage, and that is the superlative love with which a son is blessed. The superlative love with which a son is blessed. And seeing this superlative love, maybe we'll be inspired to love God as well, who amazingly is pleased to love us superlatively as well. Are we good? We're going to do that? All right. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 33. And when you found Deuteronomy chapter 33, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to hear read together from the Word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. And now verse 13. About Joseph, he said, May the Lord bless his land with the precious dew from heaven above and with the deep waters that lie below, with the best the sun brings forth and the finest the moon can yield, with the choicest gifts of the ancient mountains and the fruitfulness of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush." Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. In majesty he is like a firstborn bull. With horns are, his horns are the horns of a wild ox, and with them he will gore the nations, even those at the ends of the earth. Such are the ten thousands of Ephraim, such are the thousands of Manasseh. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for your word. It's the thrill of our hearts to join together around the word, your word because we know you are present with us. And we know, Spirit of God, that you are eager to teach us truth. And that you're eager to take the truth from your word and apply it to our lives so that we become different people. So open our ears to hear and our eyes to see and our hearts to experience your superlative love this morning. And because we are loved so superlatively, Lord, may all of our lives in every area be transformed. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, this blessing on Joseph that we just read is the longest of the final blessings that Moses gives to the, the 12 tribes of Israel. In Deuteronomy 33, before Moses goes on to be with the Lord. And it is, without doubt, the richest of all the blessings. It's as if as soon as Moses utters the word Joseph, that the Spirit of God breaks the dam and the blessings just start gushing forth. At this point in our very long study of the book of Deuteronomy, we are more than familiar with the usual way that God describes the promised land, right? He describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey over and over again. We've heard the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, for those who were born into 
the misery and the suffering of slavery, this description is surely to be one that will spark hope within them and bring joy to their hearts. Streams of flowing milk, rivers of flowing honey. That means one thing, an abundance of livestock from which the milk will come. An abundance of vegetation to feed that livestock. An abundance of vegetation to produce pollen from which bees will produce this river of honey that's going to flow in the promised land. Now this is the normal description. And it's vivid and it's beautiful in its own right. But it is not sufficient for this moment. It is not lavish enough to describe the way that God is going to bless Joseph in the promised land. And so the verses are superlative. Look in verse 13. It speaks of precious dew from heaven, deep waters that lie below. Or if you're reading from the ESV, the choicest gifts of heaven above and the deep that crouches beneath. Look in verse 14. It talks about the best the sun brings, the finest the moon or the months can yield. Verse 15, the choicest gifts. Verse 16, the best gifts of the earth and its fullness. Choicest, finest, best. These are all translations of one Hebrew word, meged, which means excellent. Calvin says that this word signifies what is best and most precious. So what God is going to lavish on the tribe of Joseph is going to be the best and the most excellent. But that should not surprise us, right? The most excellent God gives the most excellent gifts. But as superlative as verses 14 and 15 and 16 are, with their descriptions of what Joseph is going to receive, they are just the warm-up, okay? Something even better is coming. You know how we like to save the best for last? That's the way we are, right? If on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, 4th of July, if you had gone to the fireworks exhibition and they had begun with the finale, you would have probably gone home because the other fireworks are going to pale in comparison. If you start the meal with that piece of warm pecan pie. And yes, I said pecan and not pecan. (laughs) Topped with warm ice cream. You might not be interested in eating the rest of the meal afterward. If you go to the game and it's an absolute blowout by the beginning of the third quarter and the victory is certain, the stands start to empty. You're just not interested in watching the rest of the game. If you go to the symphony and they play the fourth and final movement first, you might not stay for the rest because those other three movements are just the buildup for this one moment. Something about us likes to save the best for last. We enjoy the buildup to the firework finale. We enjoy anticipating dessert after the main meal. We enjoy the buildup of the game that leads to the rush that comes with the last second victory. We erupt into applause at the completion of the fourth movement for which the first three movements have prepared us. Our emotions like to move towards something great. Every element 
that goes before, prepares us for that moment. And that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. All of this superlative language, it's just a buildup for what is the most beautiful and the most spectacular, the best, yes, the finest, absolutely, the choicest, undoubtedly, but this is just the beginning. Just the warm-up for the very best part, which is at the end of verse 16. Look there. In addition to all these superlative blessings, Joseph will receive the favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush. Joseph will receive the favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush. This is the only other reference in the Old Testament to the burning bush. And just in case you have forgotten... The burning bush is the place where God declared himself to be. I am that I am. Yahweh, the eternally existent God. The favor of this God. I am the eternally existent one is going to be upon these people. And so I don't think I'm being superlative when I say this is everything. Not only for Joseph, but for you and for me as well. The favor of God. The word favor translated here means goodwill. It means acceptance. It means pleasure. And so you can substitute any one of those words in this verse and maybe we need to use all three of them to get the fullest meaning. Joseph will experience the goodwill of God He will experience the acceptance of God. He will experience the pleasure of God. Because God takes such pleasure in Joseph. And so he demonstrates that pleasure by blessing him so superlatively. When we look at the life of Joseph, we know, we know that God takes pleasure in his people. When Joseph was just a baby, his father Jacob decided to pack up his family and take them back to his home, his homeland. And so he arranged his huge entourage in order of importance. And scripture tells us that he put his servants with their children in front. Next came Leah, his first wife, with her children. And finally, in the spot of importance and prominence came Rachel and Joseph last of all. Joseph is the only one of Jacob's sons mentioned by name. The favor of God rests upon Joseph even as an infant. He continued to find favor in the eyes of his father. Scripture says, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And so he lavished gifts on Joseph. We know about that robe that was so uh, ornamented, right? We've come to call it the coat of many colors. It was his pleasure to lavish on Joseph. But in this world, there's jealousy, there's hatred, there's anger, and there's bitterness. And so Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. But the favor of the Lord was on Joseph. And he gave Joseph success in everything that he did so that his master, his owner, Potiphar, Put him in charge of everything that he owned. The favor of God was on the life of Joseph. But in this world, 
There's sin and jealousy and lust. And because Joseph would not sleep with his master's wife, to get back at him, she accused Joseph of attempting to sexually assault her. And Joseph was thrown into prison. You know the story. But the favor of the Lord was on Joseph. And while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. When Joseph finally came to the attention of Pharaoh years later, he was released from prison, and once again, the favor of the Lord is on Joseph. And Pharaoh said to him, Since God has made known all this to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And when Joseph rode in the chariot with Pharaoh as second in command, the men shouted before him, Make way! Here comes Joseph. Make way! The favor of the Lord was on Joseph. After he became second in command, he married, he had children. And listen to what he named his firstborn son, Manasseh. He said, it is because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. His second son, he named Ephraim. And he said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph is under no delusion that his life story is one of self-improvement. It is not Joseph does not try to steal the glory from God for what he has achieved. The only explanation for his life is the favor of God and that God took pleasure in Joseph. Jacob, Joseph's father, knew that truth as well. Listen to the last words that he speaks over his son. Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above and the blessings of deep that lie below. Joseph's life is a picture of the unconditional favor of God experienced in a sinful world. Now, I'm going to give you a theological term to hang on this. Get your pencil out. Here goes. It's called the complacent love of God. The complacent love of God or God's love of complacency. Now, this is not complacency like we think of it. Eh, whatever, doesn't matter, 
to us. This does not mean that God is indifferent to us. Complacent is a compound Latin word for calm, meaning together or with, and placere, meaning pleasure, with pleasure, right? With pleasure. And so complacency is that in which someone finds great pleasure or delight. The complacent love is the love by which God the Father takes delight and is pleased in his relationship with people. The complacent love of God is is the love by which the Father takes delight in and is pleased with his relationship with people. Now, let me ask you this. When is the last time that you considered that God takes pleasure in his relationship with you? How often do you think of it in that way? I think in our best moments, we think that God is doing us a favor by saving us. And that is true, sure enough. But we also tend to think that God is reluctant to do us that favor, right? But he is not. Because of his complacent love, he takes pleasure in saving us. And this is the love that Joseph experienced. God took great pleasure and delight in him, and I think Joseph understood that. If there's one quote, and it's possibly the only quote that we can remember that Joseph ever said, it's when his brothers came to him after their father had died. And his brothers were afraid. They thought, well, now dad is dead. Joseph is going to take revenge on us for the evil that we did to him. And so they come to Joseph and they kneel before him and they say, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And Joseph broke down and wept when they spoke to him, when they spoke to him. And he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's the line we know from Joseph, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And thus, he comforted his brothers and spoke kindly to them. Joseph understood the favor of God on his life. And surely this is why he wept when his brothers were so contrite before him, you get the idea that Joseph knew that he was nothing special. He's just a man who experienced the favor of God to accomplish the purposes of God. And so Joseph becomes a type for us, for the complacent love of God that will be most beautifully fulfilled in Jesus. So we finally get to Jesus, right? Yay! Here comes Jesus. Let me just say this. If you don't finally get around to Jesus, you've wasted your time. Do I need to repeat that? If you don't finally get around to Jesus, you're wasting your time. Now, I love getting old because I say what I want to say. And I don't know everyone who's here, but let me just tell you, if you're going to a church and you don't finally get around to Jesus, you're wasting your time, okay? You got to get back to Jesus, and I'm going to tell you why. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, you know what it said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well. Yes, with him I am well. Now this is why we better get back to Jesus all the time, right? Because he is the pleasure of God. Matthew chapter 17. Jesus was transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well. Yeah. See, the father takes his greatest pleasure in Jesus, his son. Now let's tie all this together. Joseph, Jesus, and you and me. Joseph's words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, are restated in a slightly different way by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28. And you know this verse as well. The Apostle Paul writes there, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, right? And so here's the good intent of God to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Now here's the problem. We often stop at the end of verse 28 and we break what has been known for hundreds of years by the Puritan pastors as the, the golden chain. And this golden chain should not be broken. So we've got to keep reading. Romans eight twenty nine, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Let me just say, you're asking almost more than a Presbyterian pastor can bear. Not to look in depth at each of these verses, but we don't have time. Except to say this, they contain five of the greatest realities of salvation truth. Number one, foreknowledge. Number two, predestination, which is clearly not some nasty concept that Presbyterians made up to torment the rest of humanity. You can't dismiss it. You can't just say, well, I don't believe in predestination. Or you, you have to because it's in the Bible. You just have to figure out what it means, right? To be for predetermination to be part of your experience as a child of God. Three, the calling of God. Four, justification. Five, uh, glorification. I, I, I'm breaking into a sweat. <laughs> but here's what all of this has to do with the complacent love of God. What is God's goal in foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification? Here's the goal. It is that those who are foreknown and predestined and called and justified and finally glorified might be conformed to the likeness of his son. Is that not I mean? That's the goal of these five great truths. That we would become like Jesus in the same form. Remember then who Jesus was? 
The son in whom God finds his greatest delight. And so God has determined that he wants more like Jesus. Because Paul says here in Romans 8 that Jesus is the firstborn of many. So in a sense, God is determined that Jesus is not going to be an only child. Because Jesus is, is so good. And God is determined to have another. And 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 another. Made perfect in Jesus. Because of the complacent love of God. Because he takes such pleasure in it. God acts so that many will be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so Jesus can say, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given to me. A gift to Jesus. John 10. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So I hope, man I hope, you're getting the picture. God the Father finds his greatest pleasure in Jesus, his son, the love of complacency, complete pleasure in Jesus. And it pleases the father to give gifts to his son, all those he has given to his son for eternal life. So, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it pleases God to give you as a gift to Jesus. Is that not unbelievable? You may not think of yourself as a gift very often, but you are. Jesus says in the upper room, all the Father has given to me. Jesus understands we are gifts from the Father. Do we deserve it? No. Is it fair that we should be? No. But, but yes, by God's justice. And so how amazed that you should be right now by the superlative lavish complacent love of God now we're going to conclude by going back to Deuteronomy because that's where we started all this <laughs> once again Moses refers to God as the one who dwells in the burning bush what an odd description for him to give think of what Moses had experienced with the Lord. He stretched out his arms, staff in hand, and water, a sea divided before him. It piled up on the right and the left, and people walked through on both sides. Moses participated in that spectacular display on Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire, and the voice that spoke to the people with such quality that the people said, speak no more to us. Moses participated in that. God took Moses and he put him in the cleft of that rock so that his glory, the glory of God could pass by. All that experienced by Moses. And yet here, 
at the very end of his life, it's reduced to the burning bush. So Moses begins his journey with God where he began it. At the burning bush and the complacent love of God. Because God takes such pleasure in redeemed and rescued people. He met Moses at the burning bush. And he initiated the operation whereby he would rescue and redeem people. Because see the time had come. The time had come to establish this nation. Because from this nation and the king who ruled over it would come Jesus. The king of kings and the lord of lords. Who will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. And that king in his own words says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. The God who dwells in the burning bush knows your lostness. And he will find you because of his complacent love. The king says in his own words, I have come to proclaim release to the captives. God who dwells in the burning bush knows everything that binds you. And so he sent Jesus to release you. This is the amazing, superlative, lavish, complacent love of the God of the burning bush. Now you and I can love God back through placing our faith in Christ. Not only for salvation, though absolutely that's the most important thing ever. And if you have never placed your faith in Christ for salvation, think about the complacent love of God He calls to you, this God who loves you, this God who takes pleasure in you, come to me through faith in Christ. That's what you need to do. The others of you are here who have already come to faith in Christ. Have faith in Jesus in every area of your life and be transformed as you remember who you are and what you are, a gift From God, given to Jesus the Son. God takes pleasure in you. Is that not amazing? How can it be? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we can't even answer the question that we just asked. Amazing love. How, how can it be? Lord, we who think we know so much about justice and fairness and equality. Man, if we applied our standards to ourselves, we would be lost and without hope in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you are so different from us and that in your system of justice, you take those who are against you, you take those who are your enemy, and through the power of your spirit you work in us and you call us and you justify us and Lord you make us your own and you give us to us as Jesus should it be no but is it yes because you proclaim it to be true it's overwhelming Lord Father you don't do it begrudgingly because you're forced to do something you would prefer not to do you do it Lord because you're the pleasure you take in Jesus The pleasure you take in all those who are redeemed by him. So we thank you for that. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that they would hear your call to them right now. The love of a father who loves them complacently. 
And Father, for those who know you, please, we ask through the power of your Spirit, allow us to live out of the reality of our identity. Loved by you, ones who bring pleasure to you. And Father, this will transform every area of our lives. Remind us of these truths as you work them in us more and more. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.